We uh, continue to find ourselves in this Assurance of Salvation series and been looking at this conversation that Jesus has been having with his disciples. And again, this is conversation, it's a lengthy conversation that he has from all the way back from John chapter 13 there, where he is there in the upper room, and then continues all the way through John chapter 16 that kind of ends the conversation that we will see today. But then next week, we will start looking at this prayer that Jesus does, what we call the high priestly prayer of Jesus a lot of times, where he prays for himself, where he prays for for his disciples that are there with him, but then he also prays for future disciples. Jesus prays for us at the end of John chapter 17. Uh, And again, it's a reminder of uh, who Jesus is and this great gift of salvation that God has given to us. But again, you know, Jesus is there in the upper room in John chapter 13. He washes his disciples' feet. He begins to have this conversation of uh, preparing them because he knows there's only a few hours. And uh, John tells us that in John chapter 13, that he knows his hour has come. The reason why he has come to this place, the reason why he, his father sent him to this place is because of what's going to happen in a few hours that he was going to go to the cross he was going to die he was going to rise again he knew that this was the time and so he wants to have this last conversation with his disciples to prepare them and that's what this entire purpose of this entire conversation from john chapter 13 all the way to the end of john chapter 17 is all about to prepare his disciples for what is about to happen what's about to happen i'm leaving But don't worry. It's a good thing that I'm leaving. I'm not going to abandon you like orphans. Instead, I am going to send another helper. I'm going to send the Advocate. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the Spirit of Truth to be with you, to be in you, to lead and guide you, to be your teacher. And that's what we saw all throughout. And that's why we've been looking at this conversation is as we look at this understanding of this great, great gift of salvation that God has given to us, how, how if you remember those terms that we have looked back many months ago, that we are redeemed, we are been justified, we have been set free, or we are these new creations in Christ. And then this understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives as believers. And, and there's the only better way to help us understand what the role of God's Spirit is in our lives is to go back to this conversation where Jesus is having this conversation explaining to them this is the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And again, as I've said before, how the Holy Spirit works in our lives is probably the thing that as believers in Jesus Christ we don't understand we need to understand more. And again, sometimes, depending on our church background, we start talking about the Holy Spirit, and because of the abuse that has happened in the name of the Holy Spirit, we kind of get uneasy a little bit. But again, when you look at what Jesus is saying here about the role of the Holy Spirit, it's something totally different than what we usually think of with all the abuse. But Jesus finished this conversation, and that's what we're going to be, be looking at. And that Jesus finishes this conversation with his disciples one last time in verse 16 and and reminds them that, you know, in a little while you'll see me, then after a little while 
You won't see me. Again, this phrase in, in a larger conversation is you have this, these repeating themes. And one of these repeating themes is Jesus telling His disciples, I'm leaving. I'm going away. In fact, this isn't the first time. This is actually, if you want to say, the third time, that, or the third or fourth time that Jesus has actually told His disciples in the matter of these conversations, I am leaving you. First one, way back in John chapter 14, verse 4. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How do we know the way? In other words, Jesus says, I'm leaving. I'm going back to my father. And Thomas is like, okay, we want to go with you. And Jesus says, no, you can't go with me, but you know the way. Jesus answers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do not know him. Sorry, you do know him and have seen him. The next time Jesus brings this conversation back up about him leaving is John 14, verse 19. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me because I live. You will also live. And then another time in John chapter 14, you heard me say I'm going away and I am coming back to you. If you love me, you will be glad that I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. Again, that's the, if you want to say, the number one theme throughout this whole conversation, Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. Matter of time, matter of hours, but let me, let me explain what's going to happen. And so Jesus goes on. In verse 16 there, we saw, in a little while you will see me no more, then after a little while you will see me. And what Jesus is saying there is he is referring to his death and resurrection. Jesus saying, very soon Jesus will leave them, referring to his death. Then Jesus will return to them, referring to his resurrection. Again, you, you think of this conversation that Jesus is having, and you think about you know, they're, how they're wrestling with these emotions that they're dealing with. I mean, they have been with Jesus. Some of them have been with Jesus from day one. From the time that he was baptized in, in the Jordan River with John the Baptist. From that point on, some of these guys have been with him and have been talking with him and have given up everything in their lives, their, 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 their occupation, to their, their leaving their family. They've given up everything for Jesus for the past three years. And then all of a sudden now Jesus is saying, hey, my time with you is coming to the end. And this is the emotions that are happening. Which is why if you look at verse 17, Jesus says all of a sudden there's this conversation that happens with the disciples and they're scratching their heads because again, this is a repeated theme of Jesus. I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. And all of a sudden they're scratching their heads and they're saying, what in the world does all this mean? Verse 17, at this time, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying in a while you will see me no more? And then after a little while you'll see me. I'm going to my father. And they kept talking amongst themselves and asking, what does Jesus mean by this? Verse 19. Again, we have, if you look through the Gospel of John, you see throughout the entire Gospel of John that as Jesus is there and as Jesus is interacting with people, He knows what they're thinking. And the reason why John uses this terminology or this language to say, well, Jesus knew what they were thinking, or Jesus knew, in this case, Jesus understood that they wanted to ask Him a question. Is The reason why John tells us this is as, as, a, as, a, as a way to show us that Jesus is more than just a human being. 
Jesus is more than just an ordinary man. Jesus is God in the flesh. He understands what people are thinking. And He anticipates their question. He anticipates and says, oh, this is what you're thinking. All of a sudden you think about the religious leaders. They were talking amongst themselves. And Jesus says, responds, and, and they're kind of freaked out. Like, how in the world does Jesus know our thoughts? Because He's God. And that's why John refers to these passages like this. Verse 19, again, our English translations will say, you know, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask Him uh, about this. And, and, and we think in our mind, you know, sometimes when people want to ask a question, but they're a little hesitant, they're like, what? what? The more is they're talking amongst themselves, and Jesus understands what they're talking about, whispering, and Jesus just starts anticipating what they're saying. Which is why He goes on and says, are you asking one another what I meant by that? In a little while, you'll see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me again. Jesus goes on in verse 30. It says, Truly, truly, or very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn. If someone leaves or moves away. I mean, there is a, a, a part of you that, in a sense, is, is lost. And whenever we lose something... It doesn't matter how small or insignificant or, or how major it is, like a loved one, whenever we experience some type of loss, we have to go through some type of mourning process. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You're going to experience this loss because I'm leaving. I'm moving away. I'm, I'm going back to my Father. And you are going to weep. His disciples will weep. And His disciples will mourn because of His absence. His disciples will weep and mourn His absence. And you think about what's going to happen in a matter of hours. I mean, we have, we have the ability to, to fast forward a few hours and see what happens about how when Jesus gets arrested, when Jesus is taken to the, the high priest's house and put on this illegal trial, when Jesus is then taken to Pilate's house the next morning, about 6 o'clock in the morning, to appear before Pilate, when Jesus is then led out, out at 9 o'clock in the morning to be crucified. I mean, where are the disciples? They're weeping. They're mourning. They're locking themselves in the room because of fear of what's going to happen to them. But the interesting thing about this verse is that Jesus goes, truly, truly, I tell you, you will weep and you will mourn. My disciples are going to weep and you're going to mourn. But the world, what is the world going to do? They're going to rejoice. They're going to have, if you want to say, throw a party. For those who are part of our Revelations series, it's interesting when you get to a, a certain section in the book of Revelation with the, with the two uh, prophets, then it's the exact same thing. The world's rejoicing over their death. They're going to, Jesus say, says the same thing about Him. The world's going to rejoice over my death. And you think again, we can fast forward a few hours later to the next day and exactly what happens, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They, they're rejoicing. They're they're. they're insulting him and when he dies they're thinking yes we finally got rid of this troublemaker our hands are gone yeah there are, there's a little bit of them that are like well he did say that he's going to rise again in three days maybe we should post some guards to make sure this doesn't actually happen but they're rejoicing the world's going to rejoice but you're going to mourn you're going to weep you're going to feel like your heart has been ripped out and that's what mourning is all about 
when we lose a loved one, especially in the, the culture of the, the Old Testament, New Testament, when you experience this grief and this pain, you literally would rip your clothes as a sign of saying, just as my clothes are ripped, this is what my heart is like on the inside. Jesus says, you will experience that. But then he gives this illustration. He says in verse 21, a woman giving birth to a child has pain, same word as grief here, will experience grief because her time has come. Most mothers know that when you go into labor, I pick my words very carefully because I don't want to scare Suzanne and Isaiah too much, so... But most mothers know that when you go into labor, it is not a pleasant thing. It is not all of a sudden being like, like, yes, I love going into labor. There's a reason why Marguerite and I, when we, when Luke, when uh, Marguerite was um, pregnant with Lucas, we went through a a birthing class at um, the Washington, uh, Pennsylvania hospital that we are going to have, and, and the one lady said, there's a reason why they call it labor, because it is hard work, and it is intensely painful, and so that we went through, and of course, they give you coping mechanisms about, like, how to, how to, uh, uh, breathing, and, and to help, uh, especially as, as a husband being there, to be able to coach your, your wife through that time, and then she also said one of the things, good wisdom for Isaiah here, whatever your wife says during labor, don't take it too seriously. So if she says she hates you, don't, don't believe that. Again, Jesus is using this as an illustration to say, yes, there is this intense pain and there is going to be this, you're going to experience grief just like when a woman goes into labor and just as there's this, this pain and this grief and this process of birth, well, guess what happens at the end? You forget about all that pain, and usually what happens is all of a sudden you take this family photo, which I never quite understood why, but you take this family photo of the mother holding this newborn baby. There's a big old smile on her face. The, the father is there and has a big old, and there's a celebration in the midst of, how does the mom still feel? She still is experiencing pain. But in a real sense, she forgot about that pain because of this birth of this newborn child. And all of a sudden, her, joy, her, her grief, this pain, has turned into what? Has turned into joy. And Jesus says, that is what you're going to experience with my death and resurrection. Right now, you are, you're going to experience this pain. You're going to experience this grief. You're going to experience some difficulties. But when I come back to you and, you and see you after I'm resurrected, there's going to be this, your grief is going to be turned into joy. And when Jesus appears again, His disciples will experience joy that cannot be taken away from them. It won't. That's what Jesus says there in that day. Verse 22, So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. That's why one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is, of course, the love joy number two. One of the reasons why we, the difference between joy and happiness 
is happiness so much depends upon our circumstances. Happiness is dependent upon stuff around us. We're happy when we get new gadgets, or we're happy at Christmas time when we get new, new toys, or we're happy when things are going right. But joy is something totally different. Joy is not based upon circumstances. Our joy, the reason why we can have joy as the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is because our joy is based upon what Jesus Christ has done for us in our lives. That we have been set free. That we have this new life in Christ. That our sins have been forgiven. That when God looks at us, He declares us as righteous. And that's where our joy comes. We can have the whole, we can, our world could be a completely mess and full of, of difficult situations, but we still can experience joy because of what God is doing in our lives and how God has worked in our lives and because of the promises that God has given to us in His Word. And Jesus says, just as a mother goes into labor and experiences some intense pain and intense grief, at the very end, when that baby is born, there's a joy that, is, that, is, that, is, that you can't explain. And being there, I can echo that. When For the four kids that, that we've had, when, that, 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 when Marguerite tells me, listen, it's time to go to the hospital. And, you, and it's like, okay, here we go. And, and usually by the, when Miles was born, I wouldn't say I'm, I, I would be a pro, but we kind of knew what, what to expect at that point in time. And there is a joy as you're there with your, your spouse and, and coaching and, and helping and, and in your own way and, and encouragement and, and being there and, and just being there together. And then all of a sudden when the baby is born, the ugliest thing in the world, but all of a sudden tears start forming into your eyes because you know that that pain and suffering has come to an end and that there is laying on the mom's chest your son or your daughter. And no matter what's happening else in your room, you look at your child, and again, you're just filled with joy. Filled with joy. Probably also filled with other emotions of how this is all going to play out now. But for that first few moments, your heart is just overwhelmed with gratitude and with joy. He just says, that's what you're going to experience. On that first, what we call Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday, when they, when the disciples figured it out, and it took them a while. If you remember, you know the the women were going to the tomb, and again they weren't expecting Jesus' body to be resurrected. They were going to the tomb to give him a proper burial, and then all of a sudden they see the stone rolled away, and then they and then they they see Jesus, and then what do they do? They are filled with joy to the fact that that they probably didn't worry about the spices that they were carrying at that point in time. They probably had dropped them, and then they hightailed it back to the the disciples, and and they were they were saying, "Listen, he rose from the dead. He's alive." And of course, there was some confusion about all that. And so Peter and John fly to the tomb. And they, and they see that. And John tells us when he looks in and doesn't see Jesus' body, he believes. And again, there's this sense of joy. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, there was so much joy that they got up, left their dinner on their table, and hightailed back to Jerusalem in, a, in, a, in a, probably a sprint, which was miles away. And then they all of a sudden hear that Jesus appeared to Peter. And you think of the joy and the rejoicing that happened, except for the one guy named Thomas, who said, no, this is a bunch of baloney. 
There's no way a dead person can come back to life. And they're like, no, we really see him. We really see him. And he says those famous words, unless I can touch him, unless I can put my hand in his nail-pierced hands and in his side, I will not believe. Do you realize how long it took Jesus to appear to Thomas? An entire week goes by. The disciples are there rejoicing. And Thomas is there saying, nah, nah. Nah. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and He says, Thomas, touch me. Look at my side where the spear went in. And then finally, Thomas says, I believe. And then he got to experience that same type of joy. Again, you look at the disciples' life and you think, how in the world could they go through this, this intense pain and suffering? And, and, they, and it wasn't, the, the disciples' life wasn't easy after that. They suffered persecution and they, and they traveled all around the, the known world at that time. And you look at them and you want to know more about what happens to them. You pull out the Fox's Book of Martyrs or, or some other book that deals with the disciples and how they died. I mean, they died in some very tragic ways, but they died with joy joy in their heart because they knew that their final breath on this planet meant that they would go into the very presence of God and they would see their Lord face to face again. The joy that no one could take away. Again, that's how it is in our own lives. Knowing and understanding that I was lost. I was dead. I was guilty, condemned before a holy God. But then I met Jesus. He took the blinders off my eyes. He gave, he, he, I understood what He has done in my life and how He paid the penalty for my sin. And when I put my faith and trust in Him, He gives me this new life. I am, ex- I am now a friend of God, not an enemy of God. I'm a friend of God. I have been redeemed. I've been set free. I'm this new creation in Christ. I can have this joy and understand that one day I will see my Savior, my Savior who I've never seen before. I will see Him face to face. I will bow on my knees and I will say, Lord Jesus, my Savior. Again, the joy of having that new life in Christ. But Jesus just doesn't stop there in the midst of this conversation. Again, He, he goes on. And then in verse 27, Jesus says this, now The Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I have come from God. And so as Jesus continues in this conversation, He Again, he is helping them and reiterating this relationship that that Jesus has with the Father. But now he switches, excuse me, switches and says that now this the Father has with the disciples. You see, God the Father, Jesus says, He loves you, and that word love is is not the understanding of the agape love, but is the understanding of He is He considers them. To, the God the Father considers them His friend. Which is why we can say, you know, we're friends of God. The Father considers them His friend. Why? Number one, because they love Jesus. Because you have loved Me. And again, that understanding of love isn't this feeling, this gushy, oh, and this is Valentine's, you know, this feeling of, oh man, I'm, I'm, I, I love my spouse because I have these warm, fuzzy feelings all the time. According to Scripture, if we love Jesus, how do we show that we love Jesus? 
by what we do. By walking in obedience to Him. John chapter 14, we saw this. John chapter 14, verse 21. Whoever has My commands and keeps them, obeys them, is the one who does what? Who loves Me. Again, talk is cheap. Anybody can say they love Jesus. But according to Jesus, if you really love Jesus, it is how you live your life. It is what you do. That's the whole argument in James chapter 2 there. End of chapter 1, chapter 2. You say you have faith in God. Fantastic. Well, even the demons have faith in God. In fact, the demons know more that God exists more than we do. And they shudder. True saving faith is that it affects what you do. Jesus said, if you really love me, then you obey. You will prove it with your life. That's what the letter of 1 John is all about. Same understanding. So Jesus says, the Father considers me the Father considers the disciples His friends because, number one, they love Him, but number two, they also believe that Jesus is that Messiah, that they believe that I, referring to Jesus, came from God. And again, John is writing this to believers later on. He's what was the last one of the last Gospels that was written. Matthew, Mark, Luke were written early. Uh, but John waited uh, after they were written to, to kind of write his gospel to kind of, and he's writing to explain, you know, that Jesus is not just an ordinary man. He wasn't just some miracle worker. Jesus was God in the flesh, which is why you have this language, especially at the end of this conversation, that I'm going back to my Father. I'm referring God the Father. You understand that I have come from God the Father that I am that promised Messiah, that I am God in the flesh, as John chapter 1 tells us about. And that's the reason why Jesus says the Father, referring God the Father, considers you as His friends. Because you walk in obedience to Me and you believe that I am the promised Messiah. And again, the same is true for us. If we know, if we, God the Father considers us friends of His, as we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and as we live a life that is obedient to Jesus. But then Jesus goes on as He closes out this conversation in a little bit, and He says, verse 30, now we can see the disciples again, and say after Jesus talks, tells them these things, and He said, oh yeah, we, we believe. And then in verse um, 29, now you are speaking clearly without figures of speech or veiled sayings. Now we can see that you know all these things and that, that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you come from God. Verse 31, do you now believe? Again, how long have I been with you and all of a sudden now you believe? Verse 32, a time is coming, in fact, has come when you will be scattered. Again, we can fast forward and see that exactly what happened. They are scattered. And it says each to hit your own home. And actually, it's not so much to their own home. They're scattered in their own direction is more what's happening. And that's usually what happens. If you think of, of uh, that when people scatter, they, don't, they, they scatter everybody heading in their own direction. And that is exactly what the disciples did. You will leave me alone. Uh, but yet, Jesus goes on and says this, but yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. He, he, again, He's telling them, listen, when I get a, 
in a few hours, you're, you're all, yeah, we're going to fight for you. Yeah, we're going to defend you. Yeah, we're going to stick with you and die if we have to. And Jesus says there's coming a time when, when you will be scattered. Everybody's going to be going in their own direction. And again, that's exactly what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is arrested and everybody leaves him, abandons him. Yes, there is Peter and the other disciple that we think is the John that sneaks into that, that the high priest's house and watches the trial. But everybody else is, 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 is gone. gone. Probably gone back to the upper room, locked the door, and are freaking out. But Jesus says, even though I'm going to be alone because you're going to scatter me, understand this, I will never be alone because why? My Father is with me. And the same is true in our lives. When everyone abandons you, when you feel like you are alone, we need to remember that you need to remember that you are not alone because your heavenly Father is with you. There's only been a few times in my life when I have felt totally alone. And the one time that I that to this day I still remember is when I went to Philadelphia, I worked in this church, knew no one in the city of Philadelphia. I remember sitting there the first night after getting to the church, after meeting the pastor for the second time, sitting there on the side of my bed thinking, how can I be so feel so alone in a city of a million and a half people? I mean, I knew no one. But then all of a sudden, I remember these verses of that Psalm 139. No, no matter where we go, you know, God is there. And I began standing there, sitting there on the side of my bed, thinking in my mind, you know, even though I feel all by myself, even though I really am all by myself, because not only was I had no idea who any of these people were that I lived or knew, knew one in Philadelphia, I was in this, the church building all by myself in their, their apartment. And so you think about that, that I am new, no, not no, the first thing the pastor told me when I pulled my car into the parking lot and he saw my, my license plate, he said, oh, you're, you're from that side of the state. I said, well, what side of the state are you talking about? Oh, the side of the state that actually gives you those little, you remember when you, the, those stickers on the top of your license plate? You're, you're from that side. I said, well, I thought all the people in the whole entire state had those stickers. No, not in Philadelphia, because people steal them. We have little stickers that stick in our car, in the interior of our car. So just get ready for your license plate to get stolen. That's literally what he told me. I said, well, what happens if that happens? Well, you call the state of Pennsylvania and they'll give you another one. I thought, well, this is great. I'm welcome to Philadelphia mentality. Exactly, brotherly love. And again, that emptiness or that feeling like you're all alone. But again, as I cried out to God and I said, God, I need you more than ever. I know you have brought me here this summer. I don't know anybody. I feel like I am way over my head. But you are here with me. And that's what Jesus is saying. And that really is, you know, even as you think about what's going to happen, why does Jesus go to the Garden of Gethsemane? Why does Jesus pray? And we know part of His prayer was, no, the, you know, let your will be done. 
there's any other way, you know, let this cup pass for me, but let your will that act of surrendering. But I think part of his prayer was also, would help me, help me to understand that you are with me. That in the midst of what this difficulty is going to go through, help me to not forget that you are with me. And again, those promises that God says that he'll never leave us or forsake us. He'll never turn his back on his children. That when we face these difficult times in life, we know our Heavenly Father is right there with us. He won't take us out of them all times, but He will go through it with us. Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the, the valley of darkness or the valley of death, there it says, I will not fear any evil. Why? Because my shepherd is there with me. And the tools of my shepherd, the rod and the staff, they bring me comfort. God will never leave his children. And then the very final verse that Jesus brings, again, this whole conversation that Jesus had is to prepare them. And again, there's emotions swirling around and they're trying to scratch their heads and figure this all out. But then the final verse that Jesus says there is, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Again, he, Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows that they're going to scatter. He knows how they're, they're, they're going to have this, this time of turmoil. And Jesus says, I want you to experience peace in me. And then Jesus goes on and says this, In this world, you will have trouble. Again, in this world, you will, that word trouble, another way to translate it is tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation. The same word we used for the last seven years of this, of this planet. In this world, you as my followers, you will experience trouble. You will experience pain. You will experience hardships, difficulties in life. But Jesus says this, take heart. We'll come back to that. Because I have overcome the world. Again, if the, those who are a part of our study in Revelation, at the end of every single letter, there is a, a promise that, that Jesus makes to the overcomer, the one who prevails, the one who perseveres to the end, the one who is victorious is the same word here. It says, I have overcome. I have become victorious. I have prevailed to the end. And that faithfulness to prevail, to be victorious. How has Jesus overcome the world? Number one, by walking in obedience to His Father. But number two, by His death and resurrection. That's what it all comes down to. When He died upon that cross, He paid the penalty of our sins. And when He rose again, He came out victorious. And again, that, that promises in, 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 in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first time we hear about this, the Gospel, is that one day there's going to come a, a person who comes and he is going to crush the serpent's head. And what happens on that first resurrection Sunday is, is, is God, through His this death of Jesus and His resurrection, is literally going to the, the head of Satan and stomping it and crushing his head and saying, Satan, you are no more. You have no more power. You are nothing. I have overcome you. I am victorious over you. And one day, and sometimes we ask that question, well, why in the world we, why, why in this world right now we experience all this pain and suffering? And that's why Jesus goes on and says, and the hope that we have in Christ is that one day Satan will get what he deserves. 
and he will be thrown into that lake of fire with all his demons. And he will be condemned for the rest of eternity. Well, why doesn't he do that now? I asked that question. Again, some of you know that on Tuesdays I do an apologetics class for homeschoolers, and we wrestled with this question of why is there pain and suffering in this world? And there's always that question of dealing with you know, God is sovereign, God is good. But when you look around and you see this pain and suffering, why does, so, so if there's pain and suffering, does that mean that God can't intervene and step in and crush out this pain and suffering and, 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 and deal with this? And the answer is yes, and He promises He will. Well, why doesn't God always do that nowadays? Because Peter tells us He wants every single person to come to know Jesus as His Lord and Savior. If God was to come and, and wipe out evil today and restore this world like He promises, you realize every single, the 7 billion people that live on this world, every single person's fate would be sealed. And that would be it. But He's given time for people to come to repentance. But Jesus says, I have been victorious over this world. And because, again, because of what Jesus has done, there's a couple of things that we can do. Number one, we can have peace. We have peace in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of the tribulation that we experience. Why? Because we can trust and our hope is not in this world. Our hope is where? In this new heavens, in the new earth. Our hope is where? Is knowing that when we die, we will, we will go in the very presence of God and we will no longer have to experience pain and suffering. That's the hope. That's why we can have peace in the midst of our suffering. That's the reason why when this world seems like the, the, the waves of this world are crashing down upon us and we feel like life is spinning out of control, we still can have peace knowing that we serve a God that is good, that is loving, and our hope is in the fact that we will experience the new heavens and the new earth and we'll be with Him forever. But Jesus also says, and this is the final command, Jesus says in this conversation, take heart. Literally, be courageous. Stand firm as we continue to trust in Jesus. Stand firm. Don't be moved. Stand firm upon the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, as Jesus is going and ending this conversation, He's trying to help the disciples realize, hey, this, there's, there's going to be some, a time here within the next 24 hours you're going to experience some crazy pain and grief because I am going to leave and I'm going back to my Father. But I'm going to give you a helper, the Holy Spirit, to, during this time. And when you see me again in a, in a little bit, you're going to experience joy. And again, when we see our Savior face to face, we will experience joy like never before. And Jesus says, as you are facing that, understand this. I want you to stand firm. I want you to experience my peace. Continue. Continue to follow after me as followers of jesus are we standing firm in the midst of the the pain and suffering again trials that we we face are we standing firm in the gospel of jesus or are we compromising you know we, we throw that term out all the time compromise so i actually looked it up and according to the dictionary this is what it means to accept standards that are lower than desirable. Now in politics, sometimes this is what you got to do. You got to compromise. You get 
side A and side B, and you come together to this table, and, and, and you can't get everything you want, so you say this, and I will give up this if you give up this, and we meet in the, in the middle. As followers of Jesus, we are told that we are never, ever, 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 ever supposed to compromise the gospel of Jesus. Never. We're not supposed to bury the bar down in the sand. We're not supposed to uh, <clears throat> try to do things to, uh, to detract or whatever. No, we are never supposed to compromise God's word and the gospel of Jesus. And so again, are we doing that final command that Jesus says to stand 